Hey, it's Kevin here. I just want to pause and say thank you so much for joining us online today. You've joined us in a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you haven't yet, you can listen to all of our messages at thrivechurch.me or if you haven't done this yet, download our app. Now on to today's message. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? All right. Good to be with you guys today. Uh, last week I had the opportunity to go to North Carolina and speak at a church that I serve on the external board of. It's such a joy to be there. But can I tell you, there's no place like home uh, because you guys laugh at my bad jokes. Thank you for that. I just want to say that before we even get started today. Well, if you're new with us or just joined us, maybe you've been on vacation, we've actually started a series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And one of the things we love to do here at Thrive is this. We love to go through verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And why do we do that? I want to pause real quick and just let you know why we do this. It's not because we just need something else to preach. We ran out of things. It's because we want you to learn to, to journey through the Scriptures with us. Because sometimes Scripture can be intimidating for some of us. We're like, where do we start? Like, I don't understand half of this, uh, this here. And what we want to do is we want you to journey with us through the Scriptures. Because if you're reading 1 Thessalonians, you're going to have questions. A lot of it's not going to make sense. And you know what uh, you're going to do? You're going to read with us and say, oh, he's answering my questions. So if you can, turn in your copy of God's Word we, uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. You know, Thomas Edison, who invented so many great things, like the light bulb, which we use every day, uh, when he uh, invented the storage battery, it says he went through 50,000 failures before he got to the storage battery. And when they asked him about that, they said, Mr. Edison, did you get discouraged? Were you, you know, doubtful at times? He's like, discouraged, doubtful. He said, why would I be that? He said, I found 50,000 things that won't work now. You know, none of us would call Edison a failure, would we? But he probably had more failures in his lifetime than all of us combined will have in our lifetimes. So what happens in our life is this. When we see failure in our life, when we fail at something, we have a different perspective than Edison had. We begin to internalize it and think that we are a failure because we failed at something. And what we're going to look at today in 1 Thessalonians is something that many of us may have never thought of when it comes to Scripture, especially the Apostle Paul. His trip to the city of Thessalonica in the first century was viewed by some of his haters, we would call them his critics, as a failure. Even Paul's expectations may have not been met, I'm going to tell you why. And I wonder if those on his team thought, man, that was a terrible visit to Thessalonica. And here's why. As you look at the backdrop of this book of 1 Thessalonians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he helped start. And, and the way they did it back then was, was that um, when the churches were first started, Paul would send a letter, okay, like we have this letter to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, and the elder of that church or the pastor would read the letter in one sitting. If you think going through 20 verses is hard, they read the whole book in one sitting, and they would read it over and over because that was Paul's letter to them. It's in their corporate gatherings. So Paul wrote this letter to them to encourage them to give perspective. And you got to understand the backdrop of this letter is so important because Paul is getting ready to go somewhere else and not Thessalonica. He has his heart set on Asia. He wants to go there. And it says in Acts 16, then Luke joined the journey with them, the guy who wrote the book, it says that Paul one night had a dream of a man in Macedonia waving his hand. 
saying, please come help us, please come. And this man's waving his hand. So Paul the next day tells Luke, he tells Timothy, he tells Silas, hey guys, we're going to Macedonia. I had this vision last night in this dream. I saw this guy. He's saying he needs help. We're going there. Now pause for a second. Could you imagine being with Paul and you're getting ready for breakfast the next morning and Paul says, hey, hey guys, come here. God showed me we need to go to Macedonia. Could you feel how excited that would be? Because you would trust Paul, right? You're like, this is going to be great. Well, they go to Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica's at. And when they get there, what we learned the first week is this in Acts chapter 17. They got their butts kicked. Like Keith talked about Fight Club. They preached the gospel. People began to respond to the gospel. But the haters came in and stirred up such controversy. Remember our gospel is controversial at times? They stirred up such hate that they wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to take him out. And so Paul goes to this city with the expectation of probably something a little better than what he experienced. They had to get Paul out of there. They sent him to Berea, and Timothy and Silas stay. Paul goes to Berea, and guess what happens in Berea? Those troublemakers follow him there. Like literally, you could look at a botched attempt at starting a church and spreading the gospel. That's how it could have been seen. So Paul may have felt like internally that this could have been a a failure in his trip to share the gospel to these people who had never heard it before. So I want you to look at at, at, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And and, and you're going to see what Paul opens up with. That where I get my, my thought from here. He says, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, he's speaking to the church there who got saved in that hostile environment, that our visit to you was not a failure. Why would Paul say that to them? Not because he's writing a Hallmark card. He's writing a real letter to real people who saw Paul had to leave, get out of town because of the hostility. So he opens up in this little second portion and says, hey guys, you know it wasn't a failure. You know how badly we have been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Paul's saying, look, everywhere we go we suffer. Because the haters who did not want the gospel to be spread were saying, if God was really with Paul, all this wouldn't happen. They're kind of giving some, he wouldn't face suffering and imprisonment if, if this was really a true gospel. Watch this. He says, yet our God gave us courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Friends, let me tell you this, you cannot look at your life and judge God's activity by opposition. That's what we do. Well, I guess God's not in it, the door closed. You're going to sometimes face opposition when you go to do things for God. And I love what Earl McManus said. He says, God doesn't use courageous people. He transforms the heart of cowards to be courageous in spite of all opposition. That's what Paul says to you here. He says, so you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. He's saying, look, y'all, we got our butts handed to us. We got beat. We we had no impure motives, right? Why would would we do this? Verse 4 says, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. For our purpose is to please God, not people. That's key for our message today. It says, he alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as well you know. And our God has witnessed that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we never sought any of it from you or anyone 
else. Why is Paul saying that? Because that's what the opposition was whispering in their ears. So Paul wants to attack that publicly in front of everybody. In verse 9, he goes on to say this, Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached the God's good news to you. Early on in Paul's ministry, what he had to do early on was he was a tent maker. He made tents and he traveled from place to place. Now later in Paul's ministry, the influence and expansion happened so quickly he didn't make tents anymore. At that point, he did live off the, the gospel to travel and do that. But early on, he did that. And one of the reasons he made tents, because his haters were saying, he just wants your money. And Paul was saying, I want you to understand, I'm suffering, I'm being imprisoned, I'm sharing the gospel. I don't want your money. I want you to respond to Jesus. And that was Paul's whole heart for all of this. It says this here, verse 10. He says, and you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, we urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. Verse 13 says this, therefore we never stop thanking God. That when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. Watch this. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. So the people responded to the message of Jesus. They responded to the gospel. Remember we said last week that their faith went out to the whole world, that known world at that time, of how powerful their, th their faith was. And that, that gave Paul encouragement. Then he goes in to verse 14, now watch this. He says, and then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ suffered from their own people, the Jews. Now what Paul is saying here is this, yes, I'm suffering because of my people. The Jews have come after me, some of them have. And you know what? You're suffering for the same reason too. And the gospel is still working in you. And he goes on to explain more. He says, for some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, and watch, what I, Paul gets a little salty here, just, just excuse Paul. He says, by doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has called up, caught up with them at last. Can you tell Paul was a little upset with how he's being treated by the Jews, right? <laughs> Verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, after we separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried hard to come back to you because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy? What will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? And I love this. It is you. You are our pride and joy. Paul shares with the church at Thessalonica here. He convinces them or tries to, our, our journey to you wasn't a failure. Our missionary trip to you wasn't a failure. Even though some may view it as a failure, maybe Paul struggled with the idea it was a failure. He said it wasn't a failure. 
Now we see that a church launched, and a church that had a lot of really powerful faith that went out to the world launched there. And Paul's trying to convince them it wasn't a failure. And just because you suffer, just because doors are closed, just because things don't go your way, and you're suffering, you're not a failure either. And one of the things I want you guys to grapple with, the, the, the big idea today I want you to take home that we can learn from Paul, and one of the greatest truths I've ever learned is this, and write this down in your notes, this is huge. You can't fail by being obedient to God. You can't fail by being obedient to God. Paul saw a, ma- a man from Macedonia in a dream or a vision waving his hand. And he said, you know what? God's calling me to go there. And so he, he saw that as an opportunity for obedience to go, to share the gospel. And he got his butt kicked. He spent two weeks at that church and had to launch a church from scratch in two weeks. That's pretty hard, right? And he has to go to Berea and leave. And he struggled with the idea, was this a failure? And he kind of argues the whole chapter with that. I want to encourage you today. In your walk with the Lord, you cannot fail if you're obedient to God. If you're seeking to please God and obey God and serve God and love God, stop looking at those things as failures. And I I talk to so many church leaders about this. This is something that's a conversation all the time because so many are discouraged because their ministry didn't turn out like they thought it would be. And they think that they had failed. I remind them all the time, you can't fail when you're obedient to God. Here's why this is important. Because if you don't understand this, here's what you will do. You will begin to view yourself as a failure instead of that thing failed. Right? That thing, that endeavor, that failed. But what you'll do if you don't get this is you'll start viewing yourself as a failure. And you'll stop saying, it failed, and you'll start saying, I'm a failure. You'll stop saying, yeah, that didn't work, but you'll start saying, something's not working in me. I'm broken. People will say it this way, I'm a screw-up. I can never do anything right. And we begin to live out these self-fulfilling prophecies. I see it over and over again. I try to tell people, no, 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 that thing messed up. But you're not a failure, you're a child of God. I don't care if you fill at 50 things, you're still a child of God that never changes your standing with God. And so many times we'll begin to internalize and personalize failure in our life and call ourselves that. And then you know what happens? You will begin to fail at everything you attempt because you're calling yourself that. Thomas Edison, 50,000 inventions until he got the storage batteries. He never once said, I'm a failure because that failed. It's, you know what? I'm going to try it again, and I'm going to try it again. See, God values uh, obedience, and what we sometimes got to realize, we have to have the right scorecard. God says at one point in Scripture, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice, meaning that my scorecard, if you'll just seek to please me, and that's what Paul said there, for we, we seek to please God. If you'll seek to please God, things around you may fall apart. <laughs> things around you may not work. But you'll never be able to look at yourself and say, I'm a failure because it didn't work. And guys, I see it all the time. There are people who tried their best, who did their best in a marriage, and the marriage failed, and now they think, I'm a screw-up and I can't do anything right. Listen, God will forgive you. God God will still work in you. You are not a failure. You're still a child of God. 
Some of you raised your children in church. You shared the scriptures with them, the gospel with them. And they've gone astray. They're acting cray-cray, as some of you may say, right? And you're wondering, what did I do wrong? I must be a failure. Can I tell you? What if it had nothing to do with you? What if you did everything right? And you're putting a weight on you that God never intended. You did the best you knew to do with what you had. And some of you raised your children in church. You tried your best, and it didn't turn out right. And you're internalizing that. See, you can't fail when you're obedient to God. And that's why our highest goal is to be obedient no matter what happens around us. Whenever I came here to Thrive Church seven years ago, I literally asked one of my mentors that was helping me with this process. I said, hey, again, you guys know the story. There's 20 people here all together, no kids, nothing. And I said, is this a kamikaze mission? <laughs> like, are you sending me in here, like, to just I said, are you sure this will even work? I'll never forget what one of my mentors said to me. He said, you can't fail by being obedient to God. He says, you're doing what God called you to do. You cannot control what others do. You be obedient to God, and he'll take care of everything else around you. And so the whole journey of coming to Virginia was, you know what? This thing could fail. And now when I approach other endeavors and when I'm helping other ministries or we're, we're, we're launching something, I just start off with saying, hey, you know what? It could fail. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, we could try this, and it could, it could it's just totally not work. You know what? It's okay because we're being obedient to God. We're going to try it. We're going to see what happens. I tell church planners and missionaries that all the time. Go try it. You're being obedient to God. But so many times people um, will, will use the wrong scorecard and they'll look for success and results and all these things instead of looking at the main scorecard, which is what? Pleasing God and obeying God no matter the cost in our life. And so you've got to realize that so many times we mess up on this one thing. And I want you to write this down. Here's our next step. This is, this is key. And I want you to take this action when it comes to this. Stop judging success by your interpretation of the results. Stop judging success by your interpretation of the results. You think something's successful and you have a scorecard when God has a whole different scorecard that he keeps success by. And sometimes what we view as human success and what God views as success is something totally different. Like literally in my devotion time this week, I'm preparing for a series next year. And I'm just doing some, some research and praying. And I always do that. It's a series called GOAT. You'll never, like, like you'll, you'll, next year you'll say, oh, yeah, I'm talking about that. And so I'm preparing for this series. And I came across a scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And they all want to be great. They all want to be like um, his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. And Jesus says, boys, you don't understand something. That what God views as great is not what you will view as great. He says, for the least on earth will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And some of the greatest on earth will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And here's what I personally, in our context today, believe that, what, what that means, is that what we view as success is not what God views as success. We view the guy on TV, the lady on TV, celebrity, whatever it is as success. But God doesn't view it that way. What we view in our scorecard, in our culture, is totally different than what God does. 
And, you know, and so many times, you know, we, we just kind of look at the things of earth and think that's successful, man. They have this car. They have this house. They have this money. They are successful. When I went to the Dominican Republic with, with, with Mike and Doug, we visited an orphanage there. And in that orphanage, it was mentally handicapped children who could not communicate at all. Not only were they mentally handicapped, they were so contorted, some of them, everything had to be done for them. And all they could do is make noises and scream and yell. And these three ladies worked there nonstop, and that was their whole life's mission. And as I sat there, I looked at that. And that scripture came to my mind. And, you know, and what God, when we get to heaven, God's going to bring those ladies up and say, that, that's what success was. You thought Joel Olstein was success. You thought Creflo Dollar was success. These ladies are the greatest in the kingdom, while the things we thought were great were the least in the kingdom because we used the wrong scorecard. Think about Jesus' ministry. Do we, would we all agree that Jesus was the greatest leader of all time? Just say yes if you don't agree. That. He's the greatest leader of all time. Yes, yes. That's, that's the right answer in church. Jesus, the greatest leader ever, had one of his mentees commit suicide. Greatest leader ever. If we're looking at like great leaders and great mentors, a great mentor would never have anybody that commits suicide under their watch, would they? But Jesus, on his score, God's scorecard was a great leader. But so many times what we look at as results, what we look at as success is not what God views as success. What God views as success, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this. Is my one aim to obey and please the one who gave his life for me. Friends, listen, you cannot fail if you're being obedient to God. And here are three thoughts I want you guys to write down today. Three thoughts on this illusion of failure. Three thoughts. The first action we've got to take is stop creating imaginary outcomes. First thing you got to do, stop creating imaginary outcomes. Here's what I mean by that. Does anybody, you know, what, what my son's asking, when is Christmas coming? Is it next week? Because he doesn't know. He's four and a half. So he's like, when is Santa, what is Santa doing right now? You know, what's happening? And whether you believe in Santa or not, whatever. Um, you know, so anyway, um, so, so we're talking about Christmas. We're talking about all that stuff. And he's just kind of trying to figure out time. That's the big thing, time. And he's saying, well, is, it in, is it in 500 days? I was like, no, it's in 100 days. Also, it's in 37 days. No, son. So we're talking about that. But when Christmas comes, there's something that I love to do during Christmas. And yes, I read the Christmas story and take communion and do all that. Spiritual. Here's the most unspiritual thing that I do. Ready? I love to watch the Christmas story. Are there any Christmas story fans in here? Okay. The rest of you Scrooges in here can just leave Thrive Church if you don't like the Christmas story. Because TNT will show it for 24 hours straight leading up into Christmas. Come on. But one thing that Ralphie does, and if you've never seen it, you've got to watch this, is that he has this dream. This little boy has this dream of this Red Ryder BB gun. And he creates these imaginary outcomes that he's going to get this gun. And at one point, he's like shooting the, you know, the enemies, and he's doing all this. And he's like the one saving the family. He has this just grandiose like, idea of what it's going to be like when he gets this gun. And what does Santa and the elves tell him when he's sitting on Santa's knee? He says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. And then he has his mom says, Ralphie, you'll shoot your eye out. Everybody's saying that. It's like she's like crushing his dreams. But in his mind, oh, man, this will be the greatest thing ever. And when he gets the gun, what happens to him? 
he shoots his eye, not out, but he shoots his eye, icicle hits it, he hits himself in the eye. What he was doing, though, was he, he was creating these imaginary outcomes, how grandiose it will be. We don't, we're not told in Scripture what Paul believed that missionary journey would be. But if I have a vision I believe from God in a dream to go do something for him, I'm expecting materialistic type of results, right? Like huge things to happen, big things to happen. And that's not what happened there for Paul. And many times what we do when we pray or we're thinking about something, we have these grandiose results. And I've told you this before and I'll say it again. And we actually, when we pray, we help God with the results too. God, if it be your will, that's how we start that, don't we? If it be your will, then please do it this way for me. Let me get this promotion at this job at this time, and then this house come through, and that car, and then this is going to line up, and we have it all worked out. We're just like Ralphie in the Christmas story. We've got everything planned out, and we're trying to kind of like lean God that way. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you're way too spiritual. But I know I found myself doing that. Creating these scenarios in my mind and trying to, trying to pray those scenarios, God, if it be your will. My son the other day, he kind of figured this thing out. He's kind of like tipping his hat. He's leaning me towards something. You know, we're, you know, me and him played the iPad together, something we actually do together. And he said, um, Dad, 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 okay, I'm not asking you to download a game. Because he knows that's just a no-no, like, like that's, we're not going to do that. But he says this, he says, but just so you know, I like robot games where I can build a robot. And if that robot can actually fight another robot, and if, if, if my robot could win, that would be a really awesome game, just so you know. He's four and a half, and I'm like, that's brilliant. Because, like, he didn't ask for it. He just said, well, just in case. I mean, if you're ever downloading games, just so you know, I like building robots, and I like doing this. And so, and my wife and I looked at the rear of the car, like, we gave each other a fist bump. I was like, that was good. And we laugh, but that's what we do with God, too. God, I, you know, I'm just, just saying, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave this here. Now, you wouldn't use that terminology in prayer, but we do that because we create imaginary. But then here's what happens. When your imaginary outcome doesn't happen, you're let down and you feel like a failure. Friends, leave the results up to God. Let God handle the results. You be obedient and let him handle the results. That's the first thing. Stop creating imaginary outcomes. Here's the second thing we have to do. Be content, but don't be comfortable. Be content, but don't be comfortable. When it comes to, 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 to judging success in life and interpreting that, be content, but don't be comfortable. It means that what God has given you in life, be content with that. Whatever lane you have in life, whatever lot God has given you, be content in that. You know, I talked to those ladies at, at that orphanage. None of them were walking around going, pff, pff, I gotta help these kids out. I ain't paying me nothing. You know, like, they weren't kicking, you know, tires and walking around complaining. Yet some of us, with our jobs we have, we do that, and we have way more than they do because we're not content. Learn to be content with what God's given you. Learn to be content with, the, like, you know, with whatever lot God has given you. And Paul had to learn that. One of the scriptures we talk about over and over again, the, the most misquoted scripture, I believe, in all the scripture is Philippians 4.13. If I had a dollar for every time somebody shared this scripture on Facebook, I'd be a rich man every time they misquoted it. And he says, for I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengtheneth me. He's the King James, right? And that has nothing to do with you passing a test or you working out real strong or you whatever, eating right or you, you know, 
climbing a mountain. It has nothing to do with any of that. What Paul was saying to the church at Philippi is, he's like, man, I've learned to be content whether I have a little or a lot. And the correct rendition is, I can do all these things. Which things? Contentment through Christ. Meaning that one of the greatest gifts we could have from Christ is contentment in any situation. But don't be comfortable. You keep pursuing God. It's not wrong to pursue a, a promotion or, or whatever it is in your life you're looking for, education, or to better yourself. But learn to be content with what God's given you. And finally, the last thing that we have to do, that you have to do and I have to do is this. We're going to have to quit letting others determine our worth. Quit letting others determine our worth. The one thing that Paul had to do was get the thoughts of what his haters were saying out of the way. Because they were saying he was a failure. God wasn't with him. He was all about money. All those things were being said. And Paul had to keep a single focus of letting God determine his worth. And what we have to do is stop putting our emotional health in the hands of other people who are unfit to ever carry that weight for us. We can't do that. And we can't let other people determine our worth, whether they approve of you or they don't approve of you. Whether you like my sermon or not, you know what? God still loves me. And my wife and I are doing good too, so that's great, right? <laughs> but I heard a sermon, and I'll never forget the big idea. It was in 2001 before our band left for our first tour. We played in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was at a place called Cafe Jam, and Pastor Lineberry had started a, like a, a Christian-type club thing for bands to come through and play. And on Sundays, they had church in there. And back in, you know, 2001, that was, you know, I mean, he, it was a to just really casual church. He didn't dress in a suit and tie and all that stuff. You know, he was an old rocker, drove a motorcycle. And I'll never forget Pastor Lineberry's sermon that day as we were leaving for tour. And his big idea was this. I mean, we can't remember what was said last week in church, right? This is how much this impacted me. He said, your significance is not in the heads of other people. Say it one more time. He said, your significance is not in the heads of other people. And many of us are basing our worth on what other people think about us. And we're judging our success or our failure or how good we think we're doing by what other people think about us. And we can't do that. We have an audience of one. And you seek to please God. You seek to do all you can for God. And don't worry about what other people think about you. You can't. Some of the greatest athletes of all time, when you look at Michael and you look like a, like a Kobe Bryant or Tom Brady, I don't care if you like the guys or not, Peyton Manning, all those guys, any great, there's one thing that's consistent about all, all of them. None of them ever walk around apologizing to, to their teammates for missing a shot. Show me one time, Kobe was like, hey, man, I'm sorry. You know what Kobe Bryant did? He's like, give me the ball again. Because he didn't care what anybody else thought. And, when it, and, and I'm not saying that could be a bad thing, too. But when it comes to serving God, if you're seeking to please Jesus, don't care what others think about you. You seek to please him and let him determine your worth because he says you're valuable. He says you have value. God sent his son to die for you. You're a child of God. You're forgiven. You're redeemed in Christ. You are right with God. 
God, what God thinks about you is more important than any other person thinks about you. And if you're going to use the right scorecard, you've got to make sure that happens. Because if you look at Jesus' ministry, based on our interpretation of the results, it was a failure before the resurrection. Do you know his ministry shrunk as he kept going? People walked away from his teaching because they didn't agree with it. When he got to the cross, there were three people at the cross. A few weeks earlier, a few months earlier, thousands were being fed and gathering around him. And the ultimate failure was the rabbi, the Messiah, who they believe would bring political freedom, is now dead. On our scorecard, on the disciples' scorecard, Jesus failed until the resurrection. Understand in your life that if you're being obedient to God, it may look like a crucifixion moment. It may look like for you like a tomb moment. But I want to encourage you with this. It could be the greatest thing that God has ever setting you up for. Today we're reading a letter 2,000 years later because Paul answered the call to go to Macedonia and suffer persecution. Friends, listen. When you leave here today, you seek to do one thing. Please God, obey God, and leave the rest up to him. And let him determine what success and what results are in your life. And I know this. You are going to need God's help to do this. Because as soon as you get on social media and you get on everything else, all that goes away. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's pray as we close today. Father, we're going to need your help today, God. Help us, Lord, to understand that we cannot fail for obedient to you. Help us understand the difference between something failing and us as a failure. And I just want to pray for all of those right now who are living with the weight of regret on their shoulders, who are living with that weight on their life. May today that weight be lifted off. May the pressure of some people trying to perform be lifted off, God. May we have an audience of one. May it be you. May our life be just like Paul's where we seek to please you and only you no matter what it costs us in life, God. Give us the courage and strength. May your Holy Spirit empower us to do that. And today, as we're praying today, church, in a mode of prayer, maybe for the first time ever, or maybe you're want to come back to faith in Christ or give your life to Christ, maybe you've never made that decision or you want to make that decision today that you're coming back to faith, you're going to seek to please God. You want to make Him your focus. You want to make Jesus the center of your life. If you want to do that today, it's simple. I want you to pray this prayer after me. It's a confession of faith. And it literally is this. Let's you pray this after me. Say, God, I admit that I am a sinner. I admit that I can't save myself. I admit today and confess that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day to wash away my sins. Today, God, forgive me of my sins. I turn from my old life. And I welcome your new life. I receive the full forgiveness and pardon of sins. Now, God, help me to live for you. Help me to focus only 
to please you and be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.